I'd like to get started because I want to take full advantage of uh, having our distinguished guest, Ken Aletta. Ken Aletta is uh, one of the genuinely distinguished people writing about the media. The thing that really makes him remarkable is that he is still writing things that are absolutely contemporaneous in this incredibly changed world, uh, and he's been covering it for almost 20 years. That is very, very hard, to, frankly, almost to imagine. Because Ken has always been not just a journalist fascinated with the role of the media, but the changing uh, evolutionary sense of what was happening with the media. He has written many, many books, many of them bestsellers. His newest book, Googled, The End of the World as We Know It, is another best-selling book um, published this past November. And it basically is a, an examination of the culture of Google, uh, which, you know, he was able to examine at close range, having been given access, I think, unlike anyone else's uh, ever. Uh, he has a way of, of worming his way into places like the New York Times, I remember very well, somewhat to their dismay after the, uh, after the article that you were working on for the New Yorker appeared. Uh, anyway, he is a person who... Uh, I admire greatly and who has uh, a lot of interesting things and thoughtful things to say. He is also perhaps the only person in this room who has actually had one of the new Apple iPads in his hands and fiddled with it, uh, which I hope he is going to describe uh, the sensation, if nothing else, uh, briefly. Ken, we're very glad to have you. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure. Or is yours. Oh, oh, I'll talk about the iPad. Then. Um, I went out to um, to the uh, demonstration that Steve Jobs did last week, where he unveiled the iPad. And and if you've never seen a Steve Jobs presentation, which are all of it, you can watch them on YouTube. Um, but I was at the one where he presented the iPhone in in 2007, which is really around the time I began uh, this book, and. Um, he is one of the great salesmen, and yet if you look at him, I mean, he looks a little like Gandhi today. I mean, he's, 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 very, he's somewhat frail. Uh, he is not an over-the-top salesman, yet he uses words like superlative, and this is wonderful, and this is a game-changer. Uh, but he's a great salesman because his, his presentations are so damn logical. You sit there, and all this stuff has been leaked in weeks and days before about how the iPad, which he didn't know the name, this device, this tablet, which some people took to calling the, the Jesus tablet. And, and there is a kind of religious sense around people, you know, you, you know even journalists, I, I watch at, at his presentations, they often stand up and applaud, which is absolutely appalling to watch, but it <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless it happens. And, but he, he, he his, I think his presentations are so effective in part because he, and he builds a kind of suspense into it the way a novelist does in, in a narrative. And, and so you're sitting there and he's a half hour into the demonstration and he, he, he's figured out he's presenting the iPad sitting on a couch, on a, on a leather chair, which is like, like a love seat, and symbolizing that this is a device you lean back you don't lean forward and do. It's a different kind of device. And that kind of thinking he does all the time. And, but then, as he's a half hour into the presentation, you, you, 
you're starting to say, all right, so what does this cost? And he says, so I guess you're wondering what this costs, right? <laughs> and then, of course, he says, everyone's been saying it's $1,000. Not. And then up on the screen flashes $499. And everyone goes, <gasps> you know. And it's just, it, but the device itself, uh, I don't know whether it's a game changer or not. I mean, it is in some ways a, an iPhone on steroids. It is, in some ways, certainly a, a competition for a laptop. But it is, it is a device you can hold, as you can, your iPhone vertically or horizontally. And you could watch high-definition television on it. It's a 10-inch screen. The games and the resolution of the games, are, if you're into that world, are phenomenal. Um, you have a keyboard that's the size of a real keyboard, tactile keyboard, which I don't like, which I don't have an iPhone, because I use mine mostly for email. But you can you could actually, the case it comes in, again, everything is so well thought out. The case it comes in becomes a book stand. And you put it on your desk, and you lay the iPod against it. And then if you put it in a charger, you can actually buy a keyboard and plug it into your charger. It's not a wireless keyboard yet, but I think it obviously will be at some point. And so you have a keyboard, a real keyboard, if you want that. So it does, it, it's an internet in your pocket. It's not in your pocket. You hold it this way. But it's, it, it just does everything. And if you look at the New York Times, which was there to show how the New York Times will look on the, on the iPad, unlike the Kindle, which I own, which I don't enjoy reading the Times or the Wall Street Journal on the Kindle. Um, you read one article at a time. You don't see the full front page. And the, you don't have that sense of serendipity that, you have when you read the Times. This, you, you see the entire front page of the New York Times. It's in color. You turn the pages by going this way or tapping on the right to turn the page or tapping on the left to go back a page. And, and if you tap on an article on the front page, the entire article, including the jump, appears. So it's really, you know, I mean, I'm going to buy one. But I, is it a game changer? David Carr says he thinks it's going to save newspapers. What do you think? I think many newspapers are not going to be saved. I mean, I, I, I think if, if, um, if you're a newspaper proprietor and you lean back and think, ah, the iPad's going to save my business, um, I think you should retire now and go to a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, you know, it's just... The, the problem with, with online reading, in, in a nutshell, two facts that describe it. The New York Times, uh, the daily reader of the New York Times, spends 35 minutes a day on the New York Times. The reader of the New York Times online spends 34 minutes a month. So that's the reason why an advertiser pays one-tenth online for the same ad that the advertiser pays in the newspaper. And so, though you could save, if you put your newspaper totally online, you can save roughly, in the Times case, about 60% of their costs, printing, paper, distribution. Um, but the math doesn't work out because you don't generate enough. So what the Times and other papers have to do, and the iPod offers this opportunity, figure out how to get another stream of revenue, subscription revenue, which the print newspaper has, in addition to the advertising. And that's the hope of, of an iPad. 
the Times makes a little money on the Kindle, though they give Amazon a lot of money, uh, a bigger cut, I think, than they will with, with um, the iPad. But nevertheless, that's, that's a hope, just as the New York Times creating, which they will later this year, a paywall, is another thing you do. The Journal has succeeded at that. The Financial Times has succeeded at that. You've got to throw a lot of things against the wall to see whether they work because you need another source of revenue. And, and a company like Google, with Google Search or Google News, which is aggregating content, people don't know, even know where that content comes from. And they read it, and they get that information, and they say, well, why should I pay the New York Times? This is free. And, and that's, that, that's a challenge for papers. So papers have to do what the Times is trying to do. What, what <clears throat> I know that you've written a whole book, but if you were distilling into critical insights that you gained from your study of Google about Google and about, uh, you know, disruptive technology, how would you distill that? Well, you know, uh, I, I think the engineer's king is one distillation I would come up with. And let me describe what I saw. You go out to Google and, and I, I spent two and a half years reporting this book, so I spent a fair amount of time out there. And I, I did have, as you said, Alex, access. And, but I had access, which I really wanted to the engineers, because I wanted to understand. I came to understand the engineers were central to Google's success. Now, it starts from the two engineers who created this company, Sergey Brennan, Larry Page, in a garage. They were Stanford students. And, and they're kind of odd in many ways. I mean, they're people who Larry, uh, I tell, I tell a story in there about Barry Diller when he visited them in 2000. They were now in, in Palo Alto, their office, uh, not in Mountain View where it is now. And he came in to the office, and Sergey Brin was late as he often is, and he came in um, uh, on rollerblades, which he, he did on three of my interviews, and throws his knapsack down on the table. And, and he's a more affable, outgoing, kind of character. Um, but Larry Page is a very quiet guy who, when Diller is talking to him, is sitting there with his, he had a PDA device of some kind like this in, in 2000, and he's tapping up on his keyboard. And Barry Diller says, Larry, uh, I'm talking. Can you just talk to me? He says, oh, I can do both things. I'm, I multitask. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing, it's OK. He said, Larry, choose me or the PDA. Without looking up, he says, I choose this. <laughs> and, you know, really, it, it's, you're talking about people who, who are very focused on what they do. And, and one of the things you learn is that these two guys started with an attitude that the old ways of doing things are inefficient. At the time, they were a search company. That's what they called themselves in 98 when they were in a garage. And they called themselves that for the next several years. But they imbued their engineers and half the employees at Google, with 20,000 employees, half are engineers. And those engineers get 20% of their time to work on any project of their choice. And a lot of the innovations Google News came out of an Indian born engineer who said after 9-11, how come we don't know about Islam and, and, and the rest of the world? We don't read it in the American press. Let's, let's expose people to the press around the world. So today there are 25,000 news sources, magazines and newspapers on Google News. That's pretty cool and pretty exciting. But nevertheless, those engineers 
st start with the assumption that the founders imbue them with, which is things are pretty inefficient in our world, traditional media world. And um, how do we change it? How do we make it more efficient? So an engineer, I learn, begins with a basic question, which is why not? Why not drop a print newspaper, which is very inefficient, belches pollution into the environment? Why not just have an online newspaper? Why not have Google News? Advertising. Why should you be paying th over $3 million for a 30-second Super Bowl ad this Sunday and not know who's actually watching the Super Bowl? who's actually watching your ad, and better yet, who's actually buying your product because they've seen that. Why can't you have charge advertisers only if they click on an ad? So you see those, that little box on the right-hand side of the Google page when you do a search? Those are ads in that gray box. Those ads produce tw over $21 billion a year, those little ads. $21 billion to give you a context of how much money that is. $21 billion is equal to all of the consumer advertising in all the consumer magazines in the United States. It's more than all the advertising in all the broadcast networks in the United States. It's two-thirds of all the advertising in newspapers in the United States, those little ads. But what do they say? To, they, they then go to the next question for advertising. They say, why don't we have it where the advertiser only pays if someone clicks on the ad. So if you see that ad and you don't click on it, the advertiser doesn't pay for those two lines of text. They only pay when you click. And by the way, when you click, you can then click a second time and actually buy the product. And then they have a direct correlationship, correlationship with you. In addition to that, Google Analytics has, uh, you can go online if you're an advertiser, and you could literally see who is clicking on your ads minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, month by month. And how does it work? This is another thing the engineer comes up with. They say, well, you know, it's an auction system. You do a search and imagine your New Balance sneakers. What are the keywords you would want to pick that you would, you would say, I would want to have an ad anytime someone types in this keyword? Basketball would be one. Uh, you know, playgrounds. You come up with, with terms that people might use sneakers, running. Um, and so New Balance says, I will bid, this is an auction, I will bid 50 cents anytime someone picks one of the 20 or so key, key words I pick. 50 cents. The next bidder, right, Nike, bids on, they don't know what each is bidding, they bid 25 cents. The engineer says, why don't we make it attractive for the advertiser? Why not agree that the person who, who bids first, who comes in first at 50 cents in this case, only pays one penny more than the person who comes in second. So the winning bid New Balance pays only 26 cents, not the 50 they bid. Imagine the trust you've built with advertisers when you do something like that. You're not milking them. But you go down the list. YouTube, they buy YouTube. Why can't everyone watch Jon Stewart on, on why do you have to wait up till 10 o'clock at night on Comedy Central to rerun the next day? Why don't we just watch it on, on the books? Let's digitize all the books ever published in the world. 20 million of them. Wouldn't it be great to have search and go to any book? Wouldn't it be great to bring books that are out of print back into circulation? It would be great. Did they ever think, by the way, to ask the copyright owners to, for permission or the publishers? No, these are engineers. You know, we'll get to that in a while. They, they don't, you know, which one of the reasons they've gotten in some trouble.
But nevertheless, that, one of the takeaways, Alex, is that engineer is always asking the question, why not? Why can't we do this more efficiently? And, and then they come up with ways to do it. And the ways they come up to do it are often ways that are disruptive to traditional business. But, you know, I did a, a book uh, a little over a decade ago on micro, I covered the Microsoft trial for the New Yorker and then wrote a book. And I spent time at, out at Microsoft in 98, 99, and the trial was 2000. And uh, Bill Gates was really hurt that, his, that the government was challenging him for being a monopolist and basically restraint, uh, guilty of restraint of trade, which, by the way, they were found in two federal courts. They were found guilty of that. Um, but he thought he was really doing good because he would, yes, we have 95% of all the operating systems in the United States and in the world, indeed. Uh, but it's like a common track, a railroad track. Everyone has the same track. We're a common carry. Isn't that wonderful? And in some ways, it is wonderful. And, but he couldn't understand how they were doing that. But if you read what you did in that trial, you read the emails that the Microsoft executives, including Bill Gates, were sending and Steve Ballmer were sending, kill Netscape. Let's, let's get Apple, you know. And when you spend time penetrating the culture of Microsoft at that point in time, Microsoft took joy in killing opponents. They were, they were cold businessmen. When you spend time with Google, there's no glee that they're harming the New York Times or, the, or book publishers or anyone else where they're clashing. They recognize it's inevitable they're going to be clashing. They're not cold businessmen. They're cold engineers. And, and there's a real difference with that. It doesn't mean it's not as disruptive. Uh, but their intent is different. And actually, when you press them, which I do in this book, I press Paige and Bryn and, and Eric Schmidt, who's the CEO, who's also an engineer, by the way, um, and I press them, well, how important is good information, good journalism to you? And, and actually, uh, my question was prompted because Larry Page came in um, to my interview, and he's, he was talking about journalism. I'm, I'm trying to learn more about journalism now. And I said, well, how important is that? And he said, I think it's very important. And I said, why? And he said, because our search is based on good information. And if we don't have good information, our search is not going to be good. The New York Times, he said, is real important. So I said, Did you, have you thought about buying a paper like the New York Times or investing in a paper like the New York Times? He said, actually, we have. And, and, but then we decided not to do it because we want to be a neutral Switzerland. We're a search engine, and we, we, we can't look as if we're sending people to content and we're favoring our own content. And, and that was logical. But he basically said, and I learned in my reporting, that a New York Times article, the algorithm that determines where things appear in the search results, is based on the so-called wisdom of crowds, which is the most sites that get the most traffic tend to rank higher. But they also add, and they don't the, it's a black box. They don't share what's in that black box. And there are good reasons not to share that because there are thousands of people out there that call search marketing um, uh, marketers. And they're literally trying to figure out the algorithm so they could advise their businesses how to rank higher in the, in the search results. But one of the things I learned is that some publications, like the New York Times, get an extra little boost. They get some credit for being the New York Times. And that's one of the reasons why the Times tends to, you'll, you'll tend to see Times articles mm. uh, on that first mm. page of the search result. 
to, to talk a little more about your sense of this distinction between coal businessmen and coal engineers in terms of things like what's happened in China with Google and, and the idea that Google uh, could tell Google has a record of every search I've ever done on Google and whose property is that? Do they think of that in terms of values? No. Um, they, they're being forced to by the 800-pound gorilla, which is something that engineers, as was true of Gates a decade ago, don't understand, which is that government is, is a much more powerful foe than Netscape or Apple or some of the others that they face. And uh, I asked at one point, I asked um, Sergey Brin, um, what concerns you about privacy? And he said, I'll tell you what concerns me. He says, false things being written about you concerns me. I said, that's the privacy issue that you think is most important? And then Larry Page chimes in. I agree with Sergey. That's the, that's the big privacy issue. As you were suggesting, Alex, every time you do a search, every time you do something on Amazon, there's a cookie attached to you. It's like a hat check. And on that hat check, every search you've ever done is there, everything you've read, every ad you've clicked on, every search word you've put in, every porn site you've visited, whatever it is you've done, every movie you've, you've gone to see, it's on that cookie. They don't know your name. Right? They know your zip code. But they know a tremendous amount about you, as does Amazon. Now, some of that we love. I mean, I like when I buy books at Amazon that they recommend. They said, Ken, you've bought these books. You might, these are books in similar subjects. You might be interested. I like that. It, 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 it's like going to a bookstore and browsing, you know, and, and, and it tries to replicate it. But it's one of the weaknesses of Amazon. You, you can't browse, but that's a mini browse in Amazon. That's kind of cool, I think. But nevertheless, um, the question is, as Google search slows down, as it will, it's already slowed down, though they're still growing, but it, not as exponentially as they once did. The question for Google will become, who is their customer? Is it us, the user, who's doing the search? Or increasingly, will it become the advertiser whose dollars they are desperate to receive, particularly if Google does not succeed with three other big bets they're making? One is Android, which is the operating system for cell phones. Two is YouTube, which is still losing money, though it has half the web you know, video traffic. And third is what they call cloud computing. So, um, and that's a worry that you have, that, that, that privacy. It's a much more of a concern in Europe, where privacy is, is, is really front and center. And, but Google faces three atomic issues. Privacy is one that could blow up in their face. And we already see governments in, insisting. In fact, they've had to amend their cookie policy because of pressure from the European Union not to retain cookie data so long. So they, they start purging cookie data after a period of time now. They started with 18 months. I think it's actually less than that now. And so that's because of this privacy concern. The second is copyright. And you see that issue come to the fore with the, the book settlement. They, they said they're going to digitize all the books. And then publishers and authors say, excuse me, that's my book. I mean, I had this great scene, which I relate in the book. In the second interview I did with Sergey Brin, uh, he, he came in on rollerblades. And he, he said, Ken, before we start, this interview, I got to ask you a question. He said, I've been thinking about this. He said, he said, why don't you just publish your book for free online? 
you get a lot more readers. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I, I tried to play it cool and, and, and draw this out a little bit, and, and uh, it made a better scene. And, and I said, if, would you ask a teacher to work for nothing or a plumber? Well, no. What, what's that relevant? I said, well, let me ask you another question. I said, I'm on a leave from The New Yorker to do this book. Who would pay me a salary so I could afford to work on this book? Oh, I said, let me ask you another question. I said, I come out here. I came out there 13 times, right? I stay there for a week to 10 days. I stay in a hotel in Palo Alto. I rent a car. I have meals. Most of my dinners were interviews at, at night with someone in the valley. I said, and then the plane fare and all that. I said, who would pay for that? Oh, I said, who would, who would edit my book? Who would market my book and send me on a book tour? Who would do my index? Who would, and by that point, as you go through the, the details of what's involved in a book, he's desperate to change the subject. <laughs> what do I learn from that? I learned two things. One, I learned that he's an engineer. He doesn't know how the world of books work. And naive, and he was innocent, and fine. Um, and, and there are actually some people who read that anecdote in the book and wrote blogs online. What was wrong with what Sergei said? Well, let us should take a chance and, you know, give up his life and for the internet, you know, whatever. And so, uh, but the second thing you learn from, from I, I think, from what Bryn was saying, is that he is a creature of the culture of the internet. And that culture is a culture that believes information should be free. And copyright is something to be pushed because you want, you want to emphasize what's called fair use. We want access to as much information as possible. Search is based on that notion that information is free and, and, and people will like it. And it's great. It's a library at our fingertips. It's a f I love Google. I'm, I'm totally dependent. And my, my traffic in libraries is way down because of it. On the other hand, um, copyright's real important. And, and, and they were compelled when they were sued by the publishers and the Authors Guild in 2008 six, they had started digitizing books in 2004, they were compelled to, to look at the issue and, and to say, oh my God, we won't be able to search books unless we settle this somehow with the publishers. And what they did, and it's very instructive and actually a hopeful thing for the future, uh, when you think about things like the iPad and, and iTunes and, and Amazon, which are really way platforms that allow you to pay for content. Um, they agreed to pay publishers and authors $125 million and to continue paying some royalties. And Google is going to become a competitor with Apple and with Amazon sometime late this spring. They'll start selling books. These books, that, And that's wonderful because it creates competition, but it also means another revenue stream. Uh, and it gives publishers, as we saw happen this past weekend and, and yesterday, when, when Macmillan said to Amazon, for our e-books, we don't want you to charge $9.95. We want to control the price of our e-books. And that, what did Amazon do? They pulled all Macmillan books off of Amazon. Ooh. All of their books, hardcover or e-books, which is roughly 17% of Macmillan's book business is through Amazon. Macmillan then said, fine, we won't sell you any books. And they knew that other publishers were going to, do, were going to follow Macmillan's lead because they want 
to regain control of their pricing system because what they were worried about is that Amazon is charging $9.95 for an e-book now and they're losing money on each book. They pay $14.95 for that book and they pay, they charge $9.95. So they're subsidizing the difference in order to gain market share. Once they gain market share, the publishers are saying, oh my God, they'll lower the price even more and we're totally beholden them. With, with the iPad coming on and then Google coming on, suddenly the publishers have a little more leverage. That kind of competition is very good, but also hopeful in terms of creating streams of revenue for, for, for books in this case. And what about the issue, the political questions that are arising around Google in places like China? The China thing is, is, is actually kind of interesting in, in the following sense. Google came up with a slogan. They, they had a 12-person team that went on a retreat at Google headquarters one day to try and come up with a vision statement for Google. And they all threw out, they spent time with the whiteboard jotting down, everyone threw out, this is a, we're, we're a friendly company, we're, we believe in team. I mean, all the cliches that, that people come up with. And, and this guy, Paul Bukite, uh, who's since left, um, he, uh, he was an engineer and one of the first employees, which means he probably left uh, with, I don't know, $150 million or so. And he said, this is all crap. He said, why don't we just say, don't be evil? And everyone in the room said, great idea. <laughs> and then this guy who, who had perfect penmanship, who was in the meeting, this engineer, he got up early the next morning, went around the campus, and he wrote everywhere on whiteboards, everywhere, don't be evil, don't be evil. And suddenly it became viral. And the whole campus said, that's it, that's it. And the founders loved it, don't be evil. And, you know, it, what does it mean, don't be evil? I mean, it's, it's you know, but it, it, fit, it fit their self-concept. And in some ways, in many ways, and this goes back to the coal engineer point, these are very idealistic young men. I mean, they're giving free food to their employees, and they have a, a foundation where they pledge 1% of their profits, go to environment, mostly environmental causes. Uh, they're, they're, they're really, you know, they're, they're, they're young, idealistic, they're not killers. And, and they're naive, as, as, I, as I think you demonstrated with the book anecdote I, I told you before. Um, but they're, they're a, um, they come up with the slogan and they promulgate it, and then they decide they want to do business in China. And everyone wants to do business in China. It's the largest consumer market in the world. So what happens? In 2006, China says, uh, excuse me, but we'd like you to amend your search engine. So when someone does a search for the Dalai Lama, we don't want him on the search results. Someone does a search for Tiananmen Square, no tanks, only flowers and smiling people. Google, despite don't be evil, I don't know whether this is evil, but it's certainly not good, they relent and they compromise and they agree to stay in China and do that. In 2000, but they were very uncomfortable because don't be evil is their self-concept, particularly the self-concept of Sergey Brin, the co-founder. He, his family and he, he was six years old, they escaped from the Soviet Union. They were scientists, Jews, they felt persecuted. They came to Baltimore, Jewish Aid Society helped them. They, you know, they were poor and, and he feels very passionately about human rights, despite the cold engineer who needs to measure everything. This is a real passion of his. So in 2008, in May of 2008, at the annual shareholder meeting in Mountain View, uh, which I attended, 
there was a resolution from the floor by a shareholder that Google should get out of China and, and not compromise anymore. The Google management team voted it down, meaning Page and, and uh, but there was one abstention. Who abstained? Sergey Brin. And I asked him, I said, why'd you abstain? And he gave me this convoluted, confused answer, as confused as his publishing re response to me, um, even more confused than that. And, and, and he basically said, I'm of two minds, was his bottom line. I think emotionally it was draining on him. And I think when they discovered this fall, late fall, maybe early winter, when they discovered that someone was hacking into their into their system and, and, and spying, in effect, on their users. That was something where emotionally it just was intolerable. And not just emotionally intolerable, but from a business point of view, really in, intolerable. And here's why. One other thing, and this is a takeaway from Google. One of the reasons that Google is so successful, it, and I think it relates to the trust issue that is at the heart of what journalists have to wrestle with all the time, and we've lost a lot of that trust. Google's success is based on trust. What do I mean by that? When you do Google, when Google from 98 until late 2001, Google lost money. It was living on $25 million of venture capital money from two venture capital firms. <coughs> Visa comes to them in, in 2000 when they're losing money, and they say, we'll pay you $3 million to have an ad on your front page, that Google box page where you do the search, they turn it down. The venture capitalist says, what are you turning it down? This is found money. It's, it's great. We will lose the user's trust if they think we're in the advertising business and we're going to stop them. You know, one of the things that drives you crazy on the web is you, 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 you go to a site, particularly if you want to see a video and you've got to watch a 30-second ad, you want to scream, you know, and, and they refuse to do that. And you think about the search. At the time, Yahoo and AOL, 99, 98, 2000, were really big. And their concept was you have a, a portal, a wall garden. You keep people in your wall garden. Forget the internet. Let's create a place where they, a, a self-contained universe of Yahoo or AOL, they just want to stay. They said, no, no, we want to do that. We're going to send people to the search results site they want. We're going to chase them off of Google. And they do it in four-tenths of a second. I've already told you how they do the, the clicks, how they charge consumers for that. They, are a, they, they have built user trust. If their users feel that they're all tolerating the Chinese government or anyone else spying on them, getting access to their cookies, it would devastate their business. It's very, they, unlike Microsoft, which had an operating system for 75%, you could not get another operating system. You can go to Apple for 4 or 5% of the market share, or B at the time, but essentially you were stuck. Google, you one click away from going to Bing or some other search engine. So they don't lock you in that same way. What locks you in is it's a good search, but Bing is a good search. But you trust Google. Don't be evil is part of that, but, but also no ads on the front page. The stories about you know, these idealistic young guys that's all part of it. And if you talk about Google wanting to get into cloud computing, which cloud computing is nothing more than a server that follows you wherever you are. So instead of buying packaged software, which is one of the reasons why they're a nightmare for Microsoft, don't spend $400 on Word for Microsoft. Do it in the cloud, which is a server. The same way as your email, you can, 
you can address and find it anywhere. This will follow you wherever you are, laptop, Blackberry, iPhone, uh, your PC, wherever you are, country house, overseas, the cloud will follow you, you can access it. We have all this excess capacity in our data centers, do that. But if people, people might migrate to the cloud, it's much cheaper than buying packaged software. But if they feel that someone can hack into it, forget about it. Your business is, is over. So there was a real business reason to do what they've done in China. And what have they actually done in China? If you parse what they've done, they have not said we're getting out of China. They have in fact, they've said we hope to be in China with our Android operating system for cell phones. But we cannot tolerate, they say, censoring our searches and people hacking into our computers. And so they basically asked for negotiations with the Chinese government. We're in inning one. We, we're not in inning nine here. Let me, uh, let me open it up to your, to your questions. If you have a question, please go to one of the mics here or there. Um, and uh, we will, I can't believe this is a group with no questions. That does not uh, square with my understanding. Yes. Well, if, if you think about a library, um, it, it's, um, they are, um, uh, you have it at your fingertips, um, which is pretty sensational, but may not be sensational for libraries, unless libraries figure out how do they became, become a better search engine, which is the job of, of librarians who are better educated in the digital world than maybe many are today. But there's no reason why a librarian can't be a curator of knowledge in a more efficient system. I mean, if you think about search, search is really inefficient, despite the engineer's quest to make it efficient. When you do a search and you get back, and they have a number of the search results, you get back thousands of answers. I did a search, for instance, just as a test, and I use this example in my book. Um, who was a real William Shakespeare? How many, how many answers do you think I got back? Anyone want to guess? <laughs> uh, five million, which I thought was really outlandish. And you can't have one answer for that question because it's, it's a literary dispute for years whether there was really William Shakespeare or not. But five million is kind of ridiculous. So if you can go to a curator in a library and, and they can send you to the right books and you can narrow that down to five or six um, things you should read and they can point you to stuff, you know, that's a pretty efficient search. So th but that's what traditional media has to do, uh, I'll answer the rest of your question, but th they have to think about how do I ride this digital wave rather than crash into it, which too many of them are doing now. But that's certainly one way it changes. But if you think about, I mean, it changes the way you access, you can find books, any book ever published. They've already digitized 12 million books out of the roughly 20 million. But do you think that'll make Americans more interested in books? Like that's I don't know. How would you know? Um, you know, hopefully. Um, you know, I could say, I could tell you if you talk to educators, um, and maybe you have the same experience here, that, that, um, that people who are, and this is not just related to Google, it's related to the internet and, and multiple devices, the teachers complain that, that they have a hard time getting their students to concentrate. And some teachers talk about how they won't allow a laptop in the classroom. But, but 
a younger generation is brought up on the idea they can multitask and do many things, as Larry Page thought he could listen to Barry Diller and do his PDA at the same time. Um, and, but does it affect reading? There's, there's contradictory evidence on that. Um, my own sense is it has to. And, and, and that, I mean, you just, I have a nephew who's 14, and he, uh, he did a paper which surprised me he was doing on, uh, in the 15th century, some 15th century topic. And I said, James, how'd you, re how'd you do the research for that? He said, Google. Did he mean Google or did he mean Wikipedia, do you think? Uh, both. I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I, think I think it's both. But, but what I then learned, I said, well, ha James, how do, you, how do you prevent, how does your teacher prevent from you being plagiarism? He said, well, Uncle Ken, there's, you know, there are sites that are related to the school subscribe to and colleges subscribe to that literally parse that out and can, can detect whether you've plagiarized something. But nevertheless, I am convinced that my nephew, the way he did his research, is not as good a way as actually reading a book and wrestling with the subject uh, the way you know I think you should. So I think that has, that's not a, a necessarily good effect. In the third world, if you think about People who can't afford an infrastructure, cable, telephone, wires. You have in the third world cell phones now, and they're everywhere. I mean, you read these stories about fishermen in India, in rural India, call up to find out where there's a market for the catch they've just made that day. It's very efficient for them. But kids in schools are using Google on their cell phones as textbooks, which they can't afford. That's pretty cool. And if you think about what Google does, a Google search, the internet makes information available. And that's wonderful. All the information at your fingertips. What a Google search does, it makes it accessible. And that's a big, profound, important change. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. I think, it's a good question, um, I, I think, you know, Google, when I was reporting this book as late as the spring, or actually the, as late as the summer, July, um, Google said that, that, that we will not get in the hardware business for cell phones. This, late this fall, they got in the hardware business for cell phones. Um, why? Because they realized they need that you can have an operating system for cell phones, but unless you control the hardware, how do you get the data which is so valuable? How do you sell ads off of it, which is a revenue stream? So maybe we have to be in the hardware business. I think the same thing, they're going to have an, a, a tablet too, probably. And as they move to saying we have to produce hardware, I think they'll move towards creating R&D labs. And because uh, that would be my guess. I don't know that but that would be my guess, that, that, they're, that they're, they just thought of themselves as a, as a place that asked the question, how do we make this more efficient or why not? And I think now they have to do what Steve Jobs do, does, which is basically 
control the hardware and the software and, and, and find the synergies between them. But also, Steve Jobs does it brilliantly. He's, he's proven he's done it four times now, uh, you know, starting with the first Mac in, in 84. The, the beautiful design and, and the ease of use uh, combined in one device. And that's, and I think Google's going to have to figure that out. And it may well be, this is just a guess on my part. I, I literally have, I've done no reporting on this. Uh, but you provoke me to think more about it. It's a good question. Yes. How much of the online ad business does Google have? About 40% of all the ads online of uh, Google. Um, the, uh, one of the problems with advertising, I, I think this, this will broaden, I'm going to broaden your question if I can. One of the things that happened in 2008 with the recession, it had a profound impact on Silicon Valley because they suddenly realized that advertising was a very weak read on which to lean for your future business growth. And so you had companies like, you know, in the cell phone business, cell, you're going to have smartphones and cell phones. There are going to be four billion of them in the world immediately, and which is twice the number of PCs in the world. And, but, and people say, well, how do we make money on it? Well, your phone service is one way, and your text and stuff. But how do we get ads in there? Excuse me, we interrupt your conversation to bring this ad to you? Yeah. I don't think so. Facebook? They tried. They figured, how do we get, they got 350 million users around the world. And they're losing money. Because an ad is seen, as I was describing that 30-second ad, when you do a download of a video, it's seen as an interruption. It's a pain in the ass. And it's really annoying. And so they're trying to figure out how do we how do we either create, which I, I report this in the book, advertising communities begins to say, well, we're not going to do ads anymore. We're going to think of it as a service. So your cell phone has a GPS which locates where you are, and you, you're coming out of your office building, and you want to make a reservation for a restaurant, and you press it, and they say, yes, Ken, we know you're at 8th and, and 12th, and, and um, there are eight restaurants. How many people are you? Four? Well, they can take you in 10 minutes. Is that okay? Press? Your reservation is set. That's a pretty cool service that someone's going to pay for, either the restaurant or you will, in your bill. But increasingly, and, and this is the change that started to take place in 2008 on the, in the web, John Hennessy, who's the president of Stanford, who's on the board of, of Google, and used to be the head of the computer science department, was an early internet uh, person. He said, the original sin of those of us who started the internet um, was not to charge, not to figure out a micropayment or subscription system so we could preserve content and get pe train people that they should pay for content. And Mark Andreessen, who invented Netscape, said to me in the book, Ning, which is his social network site, which now, which for a couple of years now, 
allows you to pay a premium, a monthly or a yearly subscription premium, if you don't want to see ads. So that's another way. But he says, I am inches away, he says, from asking people for their credit card information to be able to charge. They know they need two streams of revenue. They can't just rely on advertising. And so I report this in my book that, that, that YouTube, which Google owns, which has half of all the downloadable videos, was expected to lose this year, as of last December, was expected to lose $500 million in 2009. As of December of 08, that was the internal projection that Google made. They said, oh my god, we, this is ridiculous. People, the, the engineers discovered that advertisers didn't want their friendly products in an unfriendly, user-generated content world that was unpredictable. They, they wanted more professional content. So Google YouTube has begun to seek out more professional content. And whether you notice, but last month they made a deal to put independent movies and, and charge viewers of YouTube to watch independent movies. They're coming right at Netflix. They're going to have subscription models on YouTube. They have cut their losses at least in half as of last year. And maybe they, they projected to me in July that their losses would be down to between 50 million and 200 million YouTube. So the, the projection is if you have more content, you start charging. So you get away from just the reliance on advertising. That's a huge change. And it's one that, put, so what you see is that the traditional world of the New York Times and books is saying we have to figure out some way of getting a revenue stream, magazines, is coming closer together with, or the, the, the new world is coming closer together with them. And that portent, that's hopeful, because it suggests there, may, there are people in, who are engineers who are putting their brain to asking the question, why not figure out a way to charge for content? And that's all fine. China, um, it, it, it complicates the United States, but so, listen, the president's going to meet with the Dalai Lama. That, that complicates it, too. And we just signed an arms deal with Taiwan. That complicates it, too. And Hillary Clinton's speech last week complicates the three. So I think you know, we're just going to be bumping up against them, just as the new media bumps up against old. And that's the nature of the world you live in. And what you want to do is be reasonable so you don't go nuclear and go crazy on, and, and get things out of whack. But the problem is that things get very emotional sometimes. And one of the things that, that amazed me as I spent time with traditional media in reporting this book is how emotional they became. We were talking a little about this before, Alex, where I encountered more people who were book publishers and television executives and radio executives and, and newspaper executives and magazine executives and advertising executives who basically sit and moan. They sit back in their chair and they complain about Google and they complain and get very emotional about the digital world and how it's screwing up their business. And they're idiots. I mean, I think they're just insane to be doing that. They should be leaning forward and saying, what can I do? Why? They should hire some engineers and put them right at their side and say, what can we do to, 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 to work in this world and figure out how to, how to make our business more vibrant and, and, and plug into this digital world. And too many of them don't. And, and for too many of them, it's too late. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have some answers for you about how to make your book for free. And I think Cory Doctorow also has some answers about that. 
I've read his blog. Tell me what you say that's different. Just make it a question, though, and so we can move on. No, 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 don't sit down. No, I want to hear it. No. No, I really, I, I really would love to hear what you have to say. Go ahead. The, uh, Google actually initially uh, invested in Badu. They owned, I think, three percent or four percent of it, uh, and then they uh, so it was they they owned a piece of their rival. Uh, they abandoned that and they kept their mouth shut in China, and allowed uh, the Chinese authorities to, you know, censor or cleanse some of their search results uh, because they wanted to, they were frying bigger fish. They thought, which is be let's be in China. Badu has, has overtaken them as a search engine in China. By the way, a, a Russian-owned uh, search engine in Russia has also overtaken Google. And, and there are parts of the world where Google has not been successful. And, and, um, and arguably, it's because search engines are, are better attuned to the Chinese people or the Russian people. I, I don't know. I have not been and, and, and searched. And if I went there, I wouldn't know how to read in Chinese anyway, so I'd be at a disadvantage. But uh, Google has basically come to the view that what the Chinese government has done has, has stepped over a line that is not tolerable for them. So they publicly denounced it. And, and the, the implicit in their denunciation is they believe the Chinese government somehow was guilty of hacking into their, or allowing people to hack into their cookies and their, and their private information for their users. So, and I think that was the final straw that led to the split. I mean, you already have the moon. 
The, um, you know, this is, you know, it's an example. The, the, the engineers have a great virtue, which is they ask that why not question. They figure out ways to really make things efficient. And Google Maps or Street View is extraordinary. I mean, that you could see the world in, in, in any place, and, and you're going to, you can go to a street and find out what's on that street and, and, and uh, exactly where it's located and all that. That's wonderful. Or we'll get directions. Um, uh, that's great. But the flip side of, the, of that engineer is, is that they're, they're blind to things like privacy. They're blind to things they can't measure. And, and how do you measure people's fears? You know, people are afraid that my privacy might be violated. And they don't, they don't understand that. So when you ask Sergey Brin, as I said before about privacy, he says the thing that most worries him is I write untrue things about you, which means about me. He's really talking about himself. And, and he, does, he couldn't imagine that a concern that Street View might, might, give you, might have cameras showing someone having an illicit affair. Uh, someone, you know, shouting at their child. Uh, someone, you know, who is a celebrity who didn't want to be seen. If you go to Street View, for instance, and you happen to know where Steve Jobs lives, which I do, okay, I've never been to his house. I've been to his house outside, but I've never, never been in his house. You can literally, Street View, see his car parked. And you see, and, and that's kind of scary. If, if, if you're a celebrity like he is, that people might be able to peer into your windows. That's so there, and those are things where they're not sensitive. But the 800-pound gorilla is forcing them to become more sensitive about these things because this has become an issue in countries all over the world. And and so the engineers are going through an education. We're going to have one more question, uh, but before we do that, I want to remind you that uh, on Thursday here, up here on the fifth floor. The Public Divide Over Climate Change, Scientists, Skeptics, and the Media with Andy Revkin, who was of the New York Times and a superb reporter on these issues, and Matthew Nisbet, American University. That's from 12 to 2 up here. It is open to the public. You all welcome. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks. Nick Seward. I'm from the Graduate School of Education. Um, I was going to talk yesterday at the Berkman Center, uh, Joel Reidenberg, who's from Fordham, um, and, the, and the gist of his talk, I think you were there, the gist of his talk was that um, it was about transparency and the, uh, and the rule of law. And the gist of it was that, that the amount of data that's out there, um, both data about people and metadata about what people do online and on their computers, was essentially threatening the rule of law in a, in a number of significant ways. And the example he gave was that he had a class that compiled an, an enormous dossier on Antonin Scalia. And it was all information that was out in the public realm, but aggregated. Uh, it was truly scary. And so this is actually sort of a follow-up to your last answer. So what is the state of, of, of that conversation, sort of the tension between democracy and technocracy um, at Google? And if, and if these engineers need to get an education beyond don't be evil, you know, um, what do you think that education should look like um, so that they can address these, you know, these really, really difficult issues about what about the Pandora that they let out of the box. You know, I, I went, um, uh, when I went to, um, Google has a program where authors come, every day there are authors coming to their campus, and I went to speak there. And I was actually looking forward to it, and, and kind of, um, my idea was that I would 
try to provoke them with a question similar to yours, um, or a, a, a thesis or an argument similar to yours. I basically talked about the vices and virtues of engineers. And, but I dwelled a little more on the vices. And uh, just, uh, you do a book tour, you get so tired of hearing yourself that you just, I was looking for some spice and some sparks to, to happen. And it didn't, they, they were much more passive than I expected. I was kind of disappointed in that. But nevertheless, uh, what I said to them is that one of the things that, among the things that stunned me in visiting Google is how few people I encountered, and I encountered quite a lot, actually read books. I mean, Sergey Brin, his bookcase is bare. He doesn't read, read books. Larry Page read more books. I don't think he spends a lot of time reading them now. And I think, I think in some ways they're very narrowly educated. And, and so some of the issues that government is compelling them to, to think about, or hopefully my book, if they read it, that's, that's, that, that's the problem, <laughs> would compel them to, to but, but they read, what they do is they, they, they eye Google and they get stuff written about them and they can see the headlines and, and some of them, certainly a lot of stuff's been written online about this book and, and, and that stuff about, a headline that keeps recurring is, which is from the book, which is that they lack emotional intelligence. And, and, um, and in fact, uh, in the book, I, Sergey Brin, I asked him, do you think it's fair that you lack emotional intelligence? He said, I think that's fair. And, and it is. They have many virtues, but that's a vice. And a vice, again, to go back to the point, they don't know how to, they don't know how to measure things that, that are inchoate and, and are based on feelings and fears. And I think that the, the issues you're talking about and some of the future issues of how you can use technology and perhaps create harm is not one that they would think about. They're, they're, they're information optimists. And, and, but I think governments, by raising the questions that governments increasingly are raising, be it about copyright or be it about privacy or be it about concentration of power, um, are compelling them to, to think more deeply about things than I thought about. And the example of that, I mean, when, when, when I had this conversation with Larry Page about journalism, and he suddenly, it dawned on him sometime in 2008 that the New York Times was really essential to the future success of, of Google search. I mean, that was part, it was an education for him. Mm. And, I mean, does that mean we're not going to have problems? No, no. Am I a... a Am I an optimist that the that don't be evil will cover everything and you won't have things that are really worrisome happen? No, I'm not. But but I think there are some forces loose out there, uh, particularly governments asking questions, and governments being prodded by businesses who are competing against Google, like Amazon and advertising agencies and telephone companies and broadcasters who are very concerned about Google, who are and Microsoft who are pressing the government to to put Google on the defensive as they pressed the government to put Microsoft on the defensive back in 2000. That's the more flowers that bloom, the more voices that are out there, um, uh, the better. And let me just, if I can, take sure. one point of proof. We didn't hear from one voice. Sir, please stand up and tell me what you're going to say. Oh, you're, now you're shy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ken Aletta, thank you. Ken, that was excellent. Thanks, Alan. It really was.